All right. Our scripture this morning comes from John chapter 8. And it goes like this. And Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he returned to the temple. All the people gathered around him, and he sat down and taught them. The legal experts and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Placing her in the center of the group, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone women like this. What do you say? They said this to test him because they wanted a reason to bring an accusation against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. They continued to question him. So he stood up and replied, Whoever hasn't sinned should throw the first stone. Bending down again, he wrote on the ground. Those who heard him went away one by one, beginning with the elders. Finally, only Jesus and the women and the woman were left in the middle of the crowd. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? And she said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I've been asking a lot of people in our congregation to share stories of a moment that they had with God or with Jesus, a moment when Jesus got into their hearts this last several weeks. And I, I've been telling people it doesn't have to be the moment that Jesus, the first moment that Jesus got into your heart. It just needs to be a moment. And when I was up at Camp Magruder a couple weeks ago, I said, hey, Cammie, you got you got a moment like that with God? And she was like, yeah, it happened a couple of weeks ago. Let me tell you about it. <laughs> and I loved that for all of us, there are these moments that we have with God, and sometimes they can be monumental. Sometimes they can be huge. They can be moments in, in, in huge stress or fear or, or anxiety. Or sometimes they can be normal, everyday moments when God speaks to us when we're teaching kids about otters. And it's a beautiful thing. It can be a huge moment, but sometimes God just speaks to us in quiet regular moments as well. Throughout this whole sermon series and in hearing the stories from our congregation and hearing the stories from scriptures of people encountering Jesus, I'm encouraging you to think about those moments that you've had encounters and moments with God. Think about how you can articulate and share those stories because if we don't share, if we don't say these words, I think sometimes we can forget our stories and if we forget our stories, boy, we've lost a lot. This morning we're going to go into some of these stories. I kind of have, have a little bit of a story. Maybe I've shared this once or twice before, but I have this reoccurring nightmare. It's kind of, kind of the biggest fear in my life. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure that I graduated from high school. <laughs> and so let me explain a little bit. Um, I got to the end of my senior year. There's probably like three weeks left of high school, and my counselor came to me and said, Rick, you're missing a geology credit. And I go, oh, what does that mean? And he's like, well, you can't graduate. And I said, uh, I got problems. I, 
I got, I'm planning on going away to Idaho for college in the fall. I have to graduate. What can I do? And, uh, and my counselor said, well, you can take a correspondence course. And I was like, okay, let's do it. And what that is, is um, back in those days, you could, I say back in those days, like, <laughs> but there weren't internet classes, okay? So back in those days, um, you could take a class through the mail. And so they would mail me a book. I would, I would do the assignments. I would do the tests. I would mail the tests back. And I did a semester of geology in two weeks. But the final had to be proctored by a teacher at the school. So we scheduled a time to take the final about a week before graduation. I finish, I take the final, we turn in the test. I say to my counselor, are we good? I can graduate? He says, no. We have to mail in the test and then get the results back from the school. So every day that week before graduation, I'm in my counselor's office saying, hey, did we get the results back? Did they mail it back yet? And he said, no, not today, not today, not today. It's the day before graduation. And I say to the counselor, you know, graduation's tomorrow. Did they say that I passed yet? And he said, no, we haven't gotten word from them yet. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, go to graduation and, you know, we'll sort it out later. I said, okay. So I went to graduation. They read my name. I walked. I got my little... Uh, my, my little folder, I opened it up. My high school diploma was in it, so I quietly closed it, and I never said a word about geology again to anybody. <laughs> but there's this little fear inside of me that someday somebody's going to come knock on my door and say, excuse me, are you Richard Shule? Yes. Well, we got word that you didn't graduate high school, so we're going to take away your diploma. We're going to take away your college degree. We're going to take away your seminary degree. We're going to take away all your church credentials and have a nice day. And sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night fearful that somebody's going to find me out, that I did not graduate high school, that they're going to take away everything from me. Sometimes I have, that's probably like my biggest biggest fear. That is what I would call a Sunday safe story. It's a PG story. It's jokes. You guys know that I'm not in any real danger of losing my high school degree, and so when I talk about a fear, I kind of pull out one of these Sunday safe stories. The Bible is full of stories that are not Sunday safe. The Bible is full of stories that cut way deeper to true, authentic fear where people's lives are at stake. The story I just read in Scripture a moment ago is one of those stories where a woman is laid bare in front of her community in the middle of sin. And it's not a moment of laughter it's not a moment of like, well, we'll get, find some way out of this. This is the end for her, and it's a difficult story. And as we open up the scriptures, we find out there are stories after stories after stories that are not Sunday safe. What does that tell me? Man, I have some Sunday, I have some stories in my life that are not Sunday safe. I have stories, things that have happened to me, things that I've done that I can't adequately share on a Sunday morning. You all have stories like that, that you can't really share with people you don't know very well in polite company. 
And the Bible is full of these difficult, hard, dark stories. Almost as if to say to you and to me, it doesn't matter what kind of stories you have, you fit in God's plan. And I think when we see in scriptures that it's these darkest, most difficult, hardest stories, these hardest moments, when God's light shines the brightest, when grace abounds and abounds and abounds. So that's what we're going to get in this story this morning. But a little bit of background story before we get into the story. Uh, first thing you need to know is that um, the, the uh, Judea, the Jewish nation, Israel, is under captivity by, Rome, by the Roman Empire at this time. And so just recently, the Jewish leadership called the Sanhedrin, they had just lost their rights to enforce capital punishment on their society. That happened in 30 AD, so right towards the end of Jesus's life, right? And so this was a huge blow to Jewish leadership and Jewish leader th leadership's authority. Uh, they've been in captivity and they've been oppressed by Rome for hundreds of years, but they've always had the rights to kind of adjudicate their own people, to oversee their own laws. But that right is being taken away right at this moment. So that's an important thing to hold on. They don't have the right to enforce capital punishment within their community. They have to go to the Roman Empire. This is on full display at the end of Jesus' life. When the Jewish leadership wanted to find a way to kill Jesus, they had to cooperate and work together with the Roman Empire. The second thing that you need to hear uh, before we get into this story, is in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there is a law about what to do uh, for people who are, kip, uh, who are caught in the act of adultery. It is the death penalty for both the adulterer, the male in the situation, and the adulteress in the situation. So the law prescribes death for adultery, but death not just for the woman, also for the man, which kind of makes you question what's going on in this story, right? So let's get into this story. Jesus is teaching on a Sabbath. In those days, the teacher would sit and everyone else would stand, and somehow we got it backwards now, so we should change that, right? I'll sit, you all stand. <laughs> and, and these men they are frustrated, the Jewish leadership is frustrated with Jesus because he's out here talking to all sorts of people from all walks of life, from every countryside, every, from all these different people saying that God's grace is for them, that all they have to do is turn to God in their hearts and God will renew them, that they can participate in God's kingdom, God's city, God's world. And it's frustrating the Jewish authorities because they've already set up a system for how people can incorporate themselves into God's kingdom. It's through the temple sacrifices. It's through doing all the things correctly. But Jesus is out here healing people, telling everybody you turn to God with your heart, change the way you live, God accepts you and loves you. And it's threatening their authority. So they decide we gotta put an end to this Jesus guy. They come up with a plot. They come up with a plot. They... They find a woman who's been sleeping with another man. Think about this. How did they find this woman? What was going on? How did they know that in that moment she was sleeping with somebody that wasn't her husband? How 
how did her husband not know? If the whole community knew, certainly her husband would know. See, I've got this idea. I've got this idea that the husband was in on it. I've got this idea that the man she was sleeping with was also in on it. Remember the law? Both the adulterer and the adulteress is supposed to be executed. But they don't present the guy. They don't present the guy. Where's he at? I got this idea that she was set up in a major way. That her husband and the guy she was sleeping with were in on it. So these guys, they find this woman, they find this opportunity, and they take her and they put her in front of Jesus in order to trap him, in order to trap him. It says, Jesus, you're such a great teacher. You have said that you have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. Okay, well, here's the law. We caught this woman in the very act of sleeping with somebody that is not her husband. You know what the law says, Jesus. We should stone her but what do you say? They think they've caught Jesus in this moment because if Jesus says, let her go, the law doesn't matter anymore, then, you know, he loses his credentials as a Jewish rabbi. If Jesus says, let's follow the law and kill her, then Jesus is breaking Roman law because the Jewish authorities aren't allowed to execute um, capital punishment. So then he would be arrested by the Roman authorities. So it's a win-win situation for the Jewish leaders. Either Jesus is disgraced as a Jewish leader or as a Jewish teacher because he won't fulfill the law, or he will fulfill the law, and then he'll be arrested by the Roman government. They think it's a win-win situation. So these men, they bring out this woman in whatever state of disrepair she's in, lays her out in front of the community, puts her into her most fearful moment, puts her in her most fearful state. They put her into hell. I can't think of another word for that. I can't think of anything being more terrifying. I, I believe in a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy, but even myself in the core of my heart and my belly, there is this tiny fear. I can't imagine what it would be like to be called account, called on account for every wrong you've ever done, every moment of selfishness, every time you hurt another person, every time you overlooked a person in need, every time you put yourself first. I think that's a moment of fear that I can't handle. It grabs me, grips me. They put her into that moment where she is laid bare for everyone, where she is obviously in the wrong. And for her, the punishment is death. It is inevitable. The shame, the death, the fear. I can't think of another word for, for it other than hell. That seems like hell to me. The men who brought her forward, they didn't do this because they were hoping for, you know, her rehabilitation. They didn't do this to try to right a wrong in their society or in their neighborhood. They didn't do this to try to right these marriages. 
They did this as a power play to get at Jesus. They want to discredit Jesus. And here's the problem. Power plays usually leave the most vulnerable more vulnerable. This woman was already vulnerable in her society, couldn't own property, couldn't get educated, was at the mercy of her father or her husband. And when she acts out, the law says she must be killed. She's already vulnerable in her society. And these men, in order to take down their political opponent, they use her as a pawn in this game of chess. Power plays so often leave the most vulnerable around us even more vulnerable. When we act, when we move, when we try to get something done, are we paying attention to the most vulnerable around us? How this might hurt the ones that are already hurting? Are we aware of that? These men are not aware of that, but I think Jesus is. I think Jesus is. The men come in with their anger, with their bravado. All right, Jesus, show us what you got. We got you cornered on this. Jesus does not match their energy. Jesus does not yell back at them. When the moment is high, emotions are sky high, stakes are high, a life hangs in the balance, Jesus de-escalates. He calms down. He says nothing. Instead, he bends down and he just writes on the ground. He just writes on the ground. I know what you're thinking. What did he write? <laughs> what was he writing on that ground? We don't get to know. Just like we never find out what Nathaniel was doing under that uh, under that whatever tree it was, I think it was a fig tree, we don't get to find out. The story says this is not for you to know, but I got some ideas. I got some ideas. The Bible can't stop me from imagining a little bit. I think some people think that Jesus wrote the law and wrote stone her on it as a way of saying, I know what the law is. I know what the law is. Here's the law. And then Jesus gets up and says, let the first without sin cast the first stone. I don't know. I don't know if I like that one as much. Some people think that maybe Jesus was uh, writing down the sins of the people in the crowd. Tom, you slept with another man's wife. Bill, you uh, stole from Tom. Whatever, you know. Maybe he did that. And so people are seeing, people are seeing their sins being written out. I don't know about that. I like this one. Some scholars think that he was writing down other laws from the book of Exodus, chapter 23, laws that say something like this. Do not plot with evil people to act as a lying witness. How did this woman get here without a big plot of men working with each other? Do not undermine the justice that your poor deserve. Do not put an innocent person to death because I will not consider innocent this who do such evil. Scholars think that maybe he wrote those things there. You men who think you've caught me in a trap, you've plotted to destroy this woman and you think I'm gonna side with you? 
we don't know. We don't get to know what Jesus wrote. Once again, once again, it was personal. Once again, it was personal. Whatever he wrote in the ground calling out these men, I have no idea. But Jesus also forgives them. He stands up and he says, let the first one without sin cast the first stone. Jesus comes back to these men and say, you guys aren't innocent. You guys aren't innocent. If we're killing people for sins, well, who wants to volunteer? Who wants to get started? And as he calls them out on their sin, he at the same time forgives them. You're sinful. You're sinful also. I don't see any of us holding your sins against you. And in this way, Jesus demonstrates what it means to fulfill the law. Yeah, Jesus knows the law. He knows everything the law says. But the law was not there, was not given to us so that we can condemn and hurt each other. The law was given to us so that we could know the love of God. And so in this moment, Jesus fulfills the law, demonstrates he knows the law by demonstrating the grace of God and the law. Jesus goes back to writing. He goes back to writing some more. And the crowd is silent. And then it says, starting with the elders, starting with the older guys, they started to walk away. And I'd like to believe, I like to believe that that was a moment when Jesus got into the heart of some of these old Pharisees, where some of these old Pharisees say to themselves, wow, he does know the law. Wow, he does know God. Wow, I've been wrong this whole time. I like to believe that. I think that there might be a couple guys like that. And by their example, the rest of the men move on also. Now, now that Jesus has turned away anger with a soft word, now that Jesus has prevented the death of this woman and has made a safe situation, now he turns to the most vulnerable person in the street. He goes to the woman who has sinned. The scripture isn't clear on that. She's done wrong. She's messed up. She's not innocent. And Jesus bends down to her and he says, woman, where are they? Is no one left here who condemns you? And this woman with bravery, can you imagine the bravery it would take to speak back in this moment? Looks up to Jesus with confidence and says, no one, sir. No one here is to condemn me. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for my future? What does this mean for my status with God? And Jesus speaks those words of grace to her. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus is not letting her off the hook. If you imagine that she's been let off the hook in this situation, then you have not been paying attention. The seriousness of her sin and her actions are on full display for her and for everyone. 
She knows what she has done is wrong, and she's been put through hell for it. But Jesus has not come to put people through hell. Jesus has not come to destroy, but to redeem and to save. So, like it says in John 3, 17, God did not send his son to, uh, into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus takes her sin seriously, but he takes her redemption more seriously. He says, I see you, I know you, I know what you've done and I know what you've been through, but I'm not here to destroy you I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to love you. Let's get up. Let's change the way you live. Turn away from evil actions. Join me in this new world. This is Jesus' invitation to all of us who knows all of our stories, whether they are Sunday safe or otherwise. He knows all of our stories. He knows our wrongs. He's known the things that we've done. He's not here to condemn. He's not here to destroy. He's here to save. Our sins, our wrongful actions, they cause harm. They mess things up. They destroy our lives, our families, and our communities. And Jesus knows this. He's not here to destroy, but to save. I don't know where you are today. I don't know how you need to hear this. But Jesus forgives you. His grace is boundless. Jesus doesn't condemn you. Go and sin no more. I like to end the sermon with a couple of action steps or next steps, I like to call it. I think um, just practical ways, some things to be thinking about as we think about the sermon. The first one is be aware of the most vulnerable person around you. Whatever room you're in, who is the most vulnerable person? Who is the person that stands to lose the most? Who is the person that doesn't understand what's going on? Who's the, who's the person that can't speak for themselves in this moment? How are your actions in this moment lifting that person up or disempowering that person? Remember the words that Jesus said in Matthew 25 that whatever you do to the least of these, you've done for me. Jesus wants us to be aware of the person in the most need near us? Are we living and operating in ways that cares for them right now and in this moment? Whether you are at work, whether you are in church, whether you are out in the streets, what are the work, what's the work that you're doing and how is it lifting up or disempowering the most vulnerable person around you? Think about that. Secondly, you are saved by the immense grace of God you are not judged by your sin. I carry around a little bit of fear, even. I carry around a little bit of fear of hell. Yeah, yeah. God knows my stories. God has told me over and over again that I have been forgiven, that I am saved by his, gra saved by his grace, and I am not judged according to my sins. But every now and then, I still get a little bit afraid. That's why it's so important for us to hear the story over and over again. It's why it's important for us to be in worship. It's why it's important for us to receive communion. 
and to hear the words again that Christ forgives us. John Wesley calls worship, calls communion, means of grace, these actions through which God's grace can be communicated to us. And we should participate in the means of grace as often as we can. Wherever you are today, know that God forgives you and that you are saved by God's grace, not judged by your own sin. Finally, being a person who is saved by grace, can you freely practice grace with those sinners around you? I know you got a lot of sinners in your lives, and they are making your lives miserable. I know it. (laughs) Can you practice that same grace that Jesus practices with you, with those that bother you, with those that say the wrong things, with those that hurt you? Can you practice that same grace and forgive and forgive. Um, this story I wrote in the email this last week, this story uh, was not in the earliest versions of our Bible. No copy of the Gospel of John before the 6th century had this story in it. So we ask, why was it added later? Well, actually, we have commentary from other theologians in the second and third century on a story about a woman caught in adultery that Jesus had mercy on. So the story has been part of the Christian dialogue, has been part of the Christian language ever, from, ever since the beginning. So the real question is, why was the story left out of the first drafts? The prevailing thought is that Christians early on were uncomfortable with how merciful and how graceful Jesus is. That they couldn't get their minds wrapped around the immense grace of Christ. Are we over that yet? Do we allow Jesus to be as graceful and full of mercy as he truly is? As he truly is.